Welcome to this Sunday School lesson coming to you from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'll be the teacher for today's lesson. We're glad that you could join us. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for the opportunity to study it and to learn from you. And we just ask that your Holy Spirit would anoint our hearts and our minds as we study this lesson together in your name. Amen. We're using the Nazarene Quarterly for these series of lessons. And today is the lesson from May 3rd. The title is The Great Crowd. And we're going to be looking at Jesus feeding the 5,000. The text we're going to use is from John chapter 6, the Gospel of John chapter 6. And we're looking at verses 1 through 13. And then we're also going to skip to verses 26 through 33. But the title, The Great Crowd, and then the lesson theme says, Only Jesus provides our true nourishment. This feeding of the 5,000 is an interesting miracle. It's the only miracle that's included in all four of the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each one of the Gospel writers includes this miracle in their account of Jesus' life. And so we get the idea that there's something significant about this miracle, about what happened here. So we want to look today at what can we learn from this. And I want to look at two aspects. First, I want to see what does this miracle tell us about Jesus? And then, what does it tell us about ourselves? So as we get into the lesson, I, I hope those two things kind of stand out to you. As we're looking at the feeding of the 5,000, we have to remember some of the things that occurred before this. Now, Jesus had sent out his disciples on a great missionary journey, and he had sent them out two by two. And they were to travel through the surrounding countryside to the different villages. They were to preach. They were to heal. They were to cast out demons. And so Jesus had sent them to further his work. And the disciples had returned from this trip, and they were very excited. The trip had gone well, and they were wanting to tell Jesus about it. And so Jesus had his disciples with them, and he was sitting with them. Uh, you could kind of think of debriefing them on their trip. But the Gospels tell us that there were so many people coming and going that they didn't even have time to eat. And so Jesus decides to go away with his disciples to the other side of, of the Sea of Galilee so that they can be alone and be by themselves. And so that's what they do. They get into a boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee to go to a solitary place. Now, there may have been another reason why Jesus was wanting to, to cross the Sea of Galilee, and that may have been to, to get out of Herod's reach. Remember, right before this, Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. And when he hears that Jesus is doing all of these miracles, he becomes convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. And you can kind of see a bit of a guilty conscience in that. So Herod is wanting to meet with Jesus. And Jesus knows that this is a bad idea. And so when he withdraws across the Lake of Galilee, he goes to a place called Bethsaida. 
And that is outside of Herod's jurisdiction. That's in an area that's controlled by his brother Philip. And so there may have been several reasons why Jesus wanted to get away and to cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, what's interesting about this is the place that they're going could actually be reached by land faster than you could get there by boat. You could go around the tip of the lake and reach this spot by foot. But Jesus doesn't do that. And the idea that you get is that Jesus is trying to get away from the crowd. If he had gone by foot, the crowd simply would have followed him. But he and his disciples can get in a boat. That way they'll be by themselves. The crowd won't be able to, to come after them. But there's a problem. The crowd realizes where he's going. And this may have been a spot that Jesus had visited before. But they know where he's going, and so they set out on foot to follow him there. And the scriptures tell us some of them were fast. They ran and managed to beat Jesus to the spot where he's going. So Jesus and his disciples arrive where they're wanting to be, anticipating they can be by themselves, and instead they find people there waiting on them. And as he's there, more and more people begin to arrive. And so uh, Jesus soon finds himself with this huge crowd of people all around him. And instead of being alone with his, his disciples, he's back in the middle of everything. Now, for most of us, this would have probably been very irritating. We had left to get away from these people, and now here they are again. But Jesus tells us that Jesus responded very graciously. It says he welcomed them. And not only that, he began to teach, he began to heal. And so Jesus had sympathy on them. He had compassion on them because, in his words, he saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. And so he, he saw the condition they were in, and he couldn't just sit back and do nothing about this. And so he began to do what he customarily did. He began to preach and to teach to meet their spiritual needs, and he began to heal to meet their physical needs. So the day begins to, to come to a close, and the disciples begin to get more and more worried. And so they come to Jesus, and they tell him, look, you know, we need to send this crowd away. This is an isolated place, and there's, there's no uh, way for them to get food. And so we need to send them away so they can buy food. John's gospel tells us Jesus knew what he was going to do. But he asked Philip, he said, well, where can we uh, buy food, buy bread for these people. And Philip says, it's impossible. Even if we spent a half a year's wages, we could still only get enough bread to give everybody maybe a bite or two. But Jesus goes ahead and tells the disciples, he says, you give them something to eat. And finally, Andrew, Andrew comes up with a boy who has a lunch. And this boy has brought five barley loaves and two fish. And John's gospel makes the point of telling us that these are five small barley loaves and two small fish. Now, these are not, you know, fish like trout or bass or something like this. Most likely when the Bible says small fish, they were small sardine-like fish. 
And so if you've ever eaten sardines, you realize these are, are not very big fish at all. And so two sardines would barely be a mouthful. And yet this is what Jesus has to work with. But he has the disciples to put the crowd into groups of about 50 or 100, have them sit down on the grass. He breaks the bread. He blesses the bread and the fish. And then he begins to distribute it to his disciples. And they begin to give it to the people. And that's when the miracle occurs. As the disciples give the bread and the fish, they don't run out. As they give a piece of bread, a new piece of bread miraculously appears. And so the disciples are able to feed everyone in that group. And the Bible makes a point of saying everyone ate until they were satisfied. They had their fill. And that's not all. Afterwards, Jesus tells the disciples to collect all of the uneaten food. And when they do, they find that they have 12 basketfuls of food that's left over. So you can see from this all that's taken place. Uh, they started out two small uh, or two small fish, five small loaves of barley bread. They end up with feeding everyone and 12 basketfuls left over. So as we look at this miracle, we want to begin, first of all, by looking at what does this miracle tell us about Jesus, about the Christ? And we first see that Jesus is concerned for people's needs. Jesus was more concerned than most of us would be. You know, Jesus had set out with a specific plan to get away from his, uh, to get away with his disciples. They needed time to be by themselves, to discuss what had happened, to talk about what was going to be in the future. But their plans were wrecked when the crowd showed up. You know, our response, we would most likely be irritated. We would probably try to get away again and do a better job of it. But this wasn't how Jesus responded. He welcomed them. He begins to, to treat their needs. You know, and so, so Jesus is responding with sympathy and with care for the crowd. And as the day grows longer, you know, the problem of what they're going to do with this group of people, that begins to occur to the disciples. Now, the disciples, their first thought is, let's make this someone else's problem. You know, let's send them away. Let them deal with it on their own. Let somebody else deal with it. But just send them away, and it won't be uh, up to us anymore. Uh, they can take care of it themselves. But Jesus says no. He says you feed them. Jesus makes it their problem. You know, if we're not careful, we begin to see other people as a nuisance, as an obstacle, as something that's in our path. And even when we're doing ministry, when we're working in the church, this can become a problem. We, we lose sight of them as, as real people, as people with needs, as people that are hurting. And I, I think there are a number of reasons for this. One thing is we can become desensitized uh, to hurting people. We see so much in the media, on the news and in Facebook and these other accounts. We see so many video uh, clips of people that are really hurting that if we're not careful, we become numb to it. And we, we kind of begin to, to uh, keep it away from us, to, to uh, keep it out of our sight. 
Sometimes it may be that we get focused on doing a job and we let the job become more important uh, than the people around us. It may be that we begin to treat people as obstacles because we see them as bringing their problems on themselves. We think, well, it's their own fault. They got themselves into this mess. Why should I feel sorry for them? Or it may be that we feel rushed or stressed. We have a lot of things going on in our lives, and uh, these people are just getting in our way. So there can be a number of reasons why we begin to see people as obstacles or as hindrances, and we don't really stop and see them as real people with real needs, uh, as needs that we can do something about. But Christ did. Now, a second thing we see from this uh, miracle is that Christ was not limited by inadequate resources, and he worked in ways that we could never expect. You know, when Jesus set out to do this miracle, he had to use inadequate people. He had to use the disciples, and they certainly had inadequate means. As we said before, five small barley loaves. And barley was the cheapest type of bread. It was the bread for the poorest of the people. Two small fish, uh, something maybe like sardines. And Philip makes it clear there was no money to buy uh, other food. So it was a question of not having food and not having money to buy more food. You know, the disciples were also inadequate because they couldn't think of any way to get food except to buy it. And obviously that wouldn't work. You know, Jesus was prepared to work in a way that they never expected. He was literally making something out of nothing. And they, they never saw this as a solution uh, to the problem. Now, as we deal with people, as we minister, our resources are always going to be inadequate. We are never going to be up to the challenge. We're not going to have the intelligence that we need, the wisdom we need. We're not going to have the money or the material resources that we need, the personnel that we need. And this is the way that God designed it. There's not something that's wrong with the system. God designed his church to work this way. Paul is interesting when he writes to the, the Corinthian church. And he reminds them, he says, when God called you, he said, not many of you were wise or were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But then he says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Paul was saying your inadequacies are not an oversight on God's part. They are what God was looking for. God wants to use your weaknesses to illustrate his strength. God chose you because you were weak. And so you can think in this situation, what if the disciples did have unlimited money and they could simply go out and buy food? That would not have nearly had the impact that Jesus' miracle did. 
So we can see that that Jesus uh, was used to dealing with inadequate people, inadequate means. And a third thing that we learned from this lesson is that Christ doesn't just meet needs, but he supplies what we are missing with abundance. You know, Philip told him, he said, even if we spend half a year's wages, we'll still have only enough to give to each person a mouthful, just a bite, a taste. But this wasn't Jesus' plan. Once Jesus was through, everyone had eaten their fill. Now, I'm a person who likes buffets, especially the dessert table at at, uh, Golden Corral. You know, it's something to be able just to go back and get more dessert until you've had all that you wanted. And this was Jesus' idea. He wouldn't give them just a taste. He would give them all that they wanted until they were completely satisfied. And there would be more than enough left over. You know, when they were finished, they were left with 12 baskets of food. And I don't, I don't think this number is a coincidence. I think there was a basket for each disciple. You know, the disciples started out with nothing. Jesus said, you feed them. And they were saying, we don't have anything to feed them with. And when they end up, each one of them has a full basket of food that's been left over. You know, many times we have the idea that when we make the decision to follow Christ, we are choosing uh, or settling for a stripped-down version of life, a bare-bones version. You know, when we become a Christian, we have the idea that we give up the fun things so that eventually we can go to heaven. Our attitude is we'll have to deprive ourselves now, but in the end, it'll be worth it. But that is definitely not the life that Christ has promised us. One of my favorite verses is John 10.10, where Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, have it to the full. The life he promises is one of abundance and reward. It's not just the bare bones version. In Luke 12, or I'm sorry, in Luke 18, Peter asked Jesus, he says, what about us? We've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus responds by saying, look, you're going to be taken care of. Anybody who gives up his home, wife, children, brothers, sisters, who gives this up for the sake of the kingdom of God, will not fail to receive many times as much in this age and eternal life in the age to come. So Jesus makes it clear that when he comes, he provides much, much more than we can expect. Now, in today's lesson, we've been looking at uh, the first part of the lesson, the miracle itself. The second part of our lesson deals with the crowd's response to the miracles. Now, what we can see is that Jesus uh, sends the disciples away after he has fed the crowd. And then uh, Jesus goes by himself to a solitary place. The crowd learns that Jesus has gone away. The disciples have gone away. And so they go back across the lake, traveling around the end of the lake to see if they can find Jesus. And when they find him, you know, they basically ask him, you know, where did you go? Why did you come over here? And Jesus tells them very plainly. He says, 
you are coming to me not because of who I am and not because you want to worship me, but he says, you are coming to me because I fed you and you got enough to eat and that's why you're interested in me. And uh, the, the crowd then tells him, you know, are you going to be like Moses? Are you going to give us manna to eat? In other words, can you top what Moses did? And Jesus tells him, I have something even more important for you, more important than just physical bread from, Hannah, from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. And Jesus was trying to get them to see he had something of much greater value than just physical bread. The crowd had eaten all they wanted of physical bread the day before, but it's the next day they're hungry again. Jesus is saying, I have something much better to give you, but they wouldn't listen to him. So as we look uh, at this parable, we saw various things about Jesus himself. But now we begin to see something about ourselves in the crowd's response to Jesus. Jesus had attracted a crowd of followers, but they were following for their own reasons. They were following on their own terms. They weren't following Jesus because they were wanting to, to repent. They were wanting to be part of the kingdom of God. They were following Jesus because of the miracles that he was doing. Now, Jesus knew that they were there because they were curious, because they wanted to see a miracle performed. They wanted excitement. They wanted a spectacle. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24 says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knew they were not following him because of any belief in who he was, because they saw him as the Messiah. Instead, they were wanting to enjoy the spectacle. You can imagine them going home and telling their neighbors, you'll never believe what I saw, you know. And so Jesus was attracting huge crowds because they were wanting to see the miracles. They were wanting to partake of the miracles that Jesus was doing. And that's true today. If you want to, to get a huge crowd, you give people a spectacle. You feed their stomachs, and you'll get a crowd, but it won't be for the right reasons. In verse 29, Jesus tells the crowd, he says, your job is to believe in me. And they respond by saying, okay, what signs will you do? What works will you perform? If you really are the Messiah that we've been looking for, the Messiah that Moses himself prophesied about, can you do better than Moses did? You know, Moses gave our fathers manna to eat in the desert, and he didn't give it for just one day. Moses gave them manna every day for 40 years. So you fed us yesterday. Today we're hungry again. What can you do for us now? Can you do better than Moses? So if you want us to believe in you, prove it. You know, a lot of times our problem is that we come to God, but we want to come on our own terms. We want to come for our own reasons. Now, we may realize that we have a particular problem in one certain area. 
something that's causing a lot of pain, something that's causing a lot of damage in our lives. You know, maybe we have a problem with alcohol. Maybe we're eating too much. Maybe we're in debt because we're spending too much money. Maybe our marriage is in trouble. You know, our relationship with our kids is, is going south. There could be any number of things, and we look at it and say, I need some help in this area. And so we come to Jesus, we, we come to Christ, wanting him to do something about this particular thing because it's causing me so much pain. It's like going to the dentist. You have a toothache, you go to the dentist, you want him to do something about that pain. But what happens when the dentist it starts to deal with your other teeth, the teeth that have cavities but may not be hurting? You know, a lot of times our attitude is fix what's hurting, leave everything else alone. And so we come to Jesus wanting him to take care of one particular thing, but we're not really ready to let him have control in our lives. We want to keep control over everything else. So we want to come to Christ, but we want to come on our own terms. Another thing we see about this crowd is the crowd that were following Jesus, they were following because they saw Jesus as a ticket to a better life. You know, they were coming to Jesus to get what they wanted. They wanted to use God for their own purposes. They were looking for a Messiah who could provide for their material needs, who could make their lives easier. You know, after this miracle, the crowds were ready to follow Jesus. In fact, Scripture says they were getting ready to come and make Jesus king by force if they needed to. So they saw Jesus as the solution to their problems. Here was a king who could make Israel great again who could make them prosperous, who could get the economy on a sound footing, who could get them out from under uh, the boot of the Roman Empire. You know, Jesus would, would bring the good times back and bring the glory days back. But Jesus tells them, he says, you're not seeking me because you want a Messiah. You're not seeking me because you believe I am the Messiah. You're seeking me because I was able to give you food and you ate all that you wanted to eat. So they were excited about Jesus, but their enthusiasm was for the Jesus that they imagined, not the real Jesus. You know, they wanted a Messiah to restore the glory days. They were excited about the Jesus they wanted. They weren't excited about the Jesus who was headed for the cross. You know, if we're not careful, we find ourselves coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons. John Piper has a quote that I really like where he says, Jesus did not come into the world to be useful, but to be precious. In other words, we are to value Jesus not because of what he can do or what, be, what he does do for us, not because of the problems that he solves or what he provides, but we are to value Jesus because of who he is because he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, Jesus does do many, many things for us. He heals our diseases. He frees us from our sins. You know, but this can't be the reason why we follow him. We are to love and adore Jesus for who he is, not for what he does for us. One final thing that we see about the crowd is 
the crowd was focused on physical needs. Jesus was intent on meeting their spiritual needs, but all they could think about was the physical. John makes a point of telling us that this had happened just before the Passover. So as Jesus begins talking to the crowd about being the bread, you can imagine that in his mind he's thinking of himself as the Passover lamb, thinking in terms of the sacrifice that he's preparing to make for them so that they can live spiritually. But the crowd, they ask Jesus for the manna that Moses gave. You know, Jesus responds by saying, it wasn't Moses who gave you uh, this bread from heaven. It was God the Father. And now the Father doesn't want to provide physical bread. Instead, the Father is providing you with true bread, bread that gives life. And Jesus was referring to himself. He goes on to talk about himself as the bread of life. And so Jesus wanted them to realize God wanted to do more for them than just satisfy their physical needs. He wanted to provide true life. So the crowd was so focused on their physical needs, on what they wanted to satisfy their bodies, they could not sense the spiritual need. They were in no spiritual condition to understand. And this happened over and over again as Jesus ministered. Jesus is trying to get them to see their true condition of spiritual need. And all they can think about is the physical situation. Now, we are physical creatures. And this physical world is always going to be a part of us. It's always going to get our attention. But we have to realize this physical world is temporary. It's not here to stay. It's not the ultimate reality. We can't live our lives for this world. You know, Jesus tells us, what good will it do you if you gain the whole world and yet you forfeit your own soul? So all of us realize we should be living for something beyond this physical world, but it becomes so easy to get caught up in just the day-to-day -day living with our minds focused entirely on, on what's here and now and how we can solve these things. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus was telling the crowds uh, that this verse was true. You know, that if we delight ourselves in God, He will give us what we desire. Now, we misinterpret this to think God's going to give us whatever we ask for. But this is not what the verse means, and it's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come into the world to provide new ways of satisfying our appetites. Jesus came into the world to change our appetites. So when our appetites are changed, when we want the things that God wants, then we get the desires of our heart. Our desires are satisfied. So as we've looked at this lesson uh, as we've looked at the miracle of feeding the 5,000. We've learned things about Jesus. We've learned things about ourselves. One of the saddest things about this particular miracle is soon after, the crowds begin deserting Jesus. He's not what they expected in a Messiah. He's not what they wanted in a Messiah. 
And so John's gospel tells us many of his followers, including many of his disciples, not the 12 disciples, but many of the other disciples begin to leave. So many begin to leave, in fact, that Jesus turned to those 12 disciples and said, will you go away? And they said, no, you know, who are we going to go to? But this was the beginning of of the time when Jesus would go to the cross. You know, Jesus eventually would find himself completely alone, betrayed by one of his disciples, abandoned by the rest. And so this is a time when people begin to reject Jesus. They begin to reject his message and what he's standing for. And today, a lot of times we find ourselves in this situation. We are left with a choice. What are we going to do? You know, Jesus offers himself to us as the living bread, the bread of life. But we have to accept him on his terms. We have to come to him on his terms and allow him to do his work in our lives. And so we are left with the choice. Will we come to Jesus and allow him to do the work he wants to do? Or will we insist on doing what we want to do and trying to use Jesus for our own purposes? So I I hope that we've learned something from this lesson and that God can use this to produce a change in our hearts. Um, Brother John, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I have a few things I wanted to run by you before we we wrap that up, if that's okay. Sure. Um, So you were talking a lot, and you kind of mentioned in passing as you were kind of setting the stage for everything that happens with this great crowd. But there's a great contrast that I've noticed in Scripture between Herod's scene, and I know you mentioned where John the Baptist is beheaded by Herod there in the palace, but when we look at Scripture, Scripture does have a pattern and rhythm to how it is structured together. And when you compare Jesus from Herod, Jesus, he comes to people, and he's wanting to set up a new opportunity for people basically out of little, out of next to nothing. He's really giving people an opportunity that's not there, that's not visible. And there's a huge contrast between him and Herod, who Herod, he just basically has people sitting around his palace as props. If he wants John the Baptist to be there as a, de- as a decapitated head, as a prop, mm-hmm. he'll do that. And then even those that he likes as his own friends, those who he, he thinks are pleasing to be in his presence, everybody around Herod is essentially a prop for Herod. But something that you brought up was really interesting in this biblical lesson is that so often in life, we think that only someone like Herod is going to treat others as props. But there were many of those who were, you might say, commoners who wouldn't have had a palace to go home to. But they saw Jesus almost as a prop, as Jesus is a means for, for me to get whatever physical need I want. Now, you know, the physical stuff, you know, if he's going to be someone like Moses, that's great. If not, I'm just here for the bread. And I thought that was just kind of interesting how you you set that up to remind us that this is something we all have to be aware of. You in your personal life, you have to realize that that's not just reserved for Herod to think that others are a prop, that sometimes each and every one of us do that if we, we don't have our spiritual lives in, in order. So I don't know if you have any thoughts you wanted to respond back with that. Well, I, I think that's certainly true. And sometimes, you know, it, it can be the fault of us who preach Because, you know, we're constantly telling people, you know, come to Jesus and he'll do this for you. 
You know, he'll get rid of your addictions. He'll make sure, you know, he'll help your relationships. He'll do this. He'll do this. He'll do this. And that's true. You know, Jesus does so many things for us. But like you said, if we're not careful, we find ourselves coming to Jesus not out of love or not out of reverence or anything like that. But it's just kind of to get what he has for us. And, you know, uh, I think about, you know, the parable that Jesus told about the um, the sower with the seeds and how some of the seed that fell on the the uh, thin soil, the rocky ground. It says they are people who received it with joy. They were glad to hear it, but they were so shallow that it didn't last. And I think, you know, this is what happens to us. You know, when we get sure. caught up in thinking about what Jesus does for me instead of who Jesus is. Yeah. And. When we see the scripture as a whole, we find a lot of people coming to to God with open hearts. And there's a lot of times people don't really know what to expect with that. You do find people certainly who are like the prophet Jonah, who's kind of a miserable guy. Yeah. Um, you find others who, who come demanding Jesus be their Messiah. And when he's not the Messiah they wanted, he's the Messiah that the world needs, they kind of get mad. Um, but earlier you mentioned how a lot of times we've kind of got this fractured, messed up expectations where to be saved means you just have the bare bones in life. And of course, we, we find evidence of that throughout history. People, they take vows of poverty and there's different forms of that which manifest. And some of it has turned out to be more righteous. Other times it, it really just kind of gets a little, a little strange to say the least. But one of the things that I realize is that there's a lot of instances where people do not realize what God actually wants for them. They think that if God's going to bless me, then it needs to be the pie in the sky. I need to be able to go outside, and I've got my nice new car. Um, and they forget that the most beautiful things that we get in life, oftentimes people don't realize they want. You mentioned earlier how nice it is to go to Golden Corral and get dessert. <laughs> yes. I would have never imagined that eating gummy bears in ice cream would have been good. But upon going to Golden Corral and having that... <laughs> big dessert thing there where you've, you've got your dessert tables, you can get your ice cream cone, filling that up with the gummy bears and then putting the ice cream in it is delicious. And I would have never thought on the front end that that would be something that is is desirable. And that's often how our spiritual blessings are. People think, well, why would it be fun for me not to indulge in this or that or to give into these impulses? Why would it be fun and why would there be pleasure and joy in life for me to have all of these rigorous dick these disciplines, they sound so strict and awful. But in truth, we often find that when you will surrender to God and you will surrender to Christ's teachings and you actually allow him to be Lord of your life and that he is the Messiah that the world needs, not just the one that the world thinks it wants, we do find that there is joy that oftentimes we couldn't imagine on the front end. Um, a very difficult joy that's not the world's joy, not worldly pleasures, but we do find God blessing us in ways that we didn't even realize that we wanted to be blessed. Right, right. Yeah, that's certainly true. You know, you go back to to Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and, you know, he comes out by saying, you know, the blessedness of being poor in spirit, the blessedness uh, of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the blessedness. And you're right, you know, before we're saved, we have no idea that those things could be uh, such a source of blessing. But Jesus comes to change us, you know, uh, to change our appetites, our desires, and to, to really uh, free up our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much 
Pastor John for coming and talking with us. A delightful, delightful Sunday school. I know that there have been several blessed by that. Would you close us out in prayer? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this lesson that we've heard today, for uh, what we are reminded of about you, about how you care for uh, those who are hurting. You have compassion when you see us, Lord, as sheep without a shepherd, and you determine to do something about it. We, we thank you for who you are. We ask that you would help us to take these truths into our lives uh, as we go throughout this next week, that we may be better servants of you and better equipped to serve you. In your name, amen.